Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Cindy, what was that you were saying about manipulating me? Oh, <laughs> I feel like I have secretly been manipulating you over these past few months into hosting more episodes of Basic Folk. What's interesting is that I have been well aware of this manipulation and have, in fact, leaned into it. So the manipulatee has become the manipulator because my ultimate goal is to usurp the podcast. Oh, shit. Ah! Well, dear listener. No, no, no. This is my line now. You. No, no, no. This is my line now. Okay, you go for it. Welcome to Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations about folk musicians. This podcast is distributed through the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. I'm guest host, soon to be almighty host, Lizzie No, and I'm here with the wonderful Cindy Howes, who also is part of the podcast. Yes, I am slowly turning, well, maybe not slowly, I'm quickly turning into Lizzie's minion, and I accept my new role. It's my podcast now, people. You can sign up for our Basic Folk newsletter at basicfolk.com. You can also follow us on social media, although I feel like I'm just ready to, honestly, like, I don't use Twitter anymore. Lizzie No uses Twitter. I also hear this. there's this new thing that Mark Zuckerberg is trying to create to replace Twitter called Thread or Threads. This is Sheryl Crow erasure. 
I am not ready for Mark Zuckerberg to try to outdo Cheryl V. Crow on her collaborative album. The features on that album are ridiculous. Marin Morris, I think, is on it. I'm just making up. No, Chris Stapleton, Emmylou Harris, James, beep, beep, Taylor, Stevie Nicks. It's not a joke. And yes, Mavis Staples and Bonnie Raitt are on this album. So that's what I'd like to promote instead of Mark Zuckerberg's dumb thing. Okay, great. So everyone go out and buy the pre-pandemic Sheryl Crow album Threads. Can I ask you a question? Why does James Taylor have two beeps in his name? Um, Because I wanted to curse and say MF, James MF Taylor. I feel like James Taylor is the unsung, swaggy, big dick energy, Joe Cool of the songwriter community. I'm not arguing. As much as people love James Taylor, I don't think people realize how cool he is. Like when you listen to some of his songs, it's like rhythmically, like, what are you up to? Well, listen, (laughs) I just want to say you're preaching to the choir right now. I'm from Massachusetts where everyone is obligated to love James Taylor and the problematic Kennedys. I don't really necessarily get down with that. But JT, I love you. And if you'd like to come on the podcast, you're welcome anytime. So today, the day the podcast is being released is July 20th. In real time, I am in London, probably asleep. Oh my God, Cindy, what are you doing in London other than what you know, once once you wake up? I am over there because our dear friend Dietrich Strauss is getting married. Oh my gosh, congratulations, Dietrich. As this episode airs, I am in San Francisco preparing to make my SF Jazz debut. This is like a high watermark moment of my career. Like when I was a college student, I went to the newly opened SF Jazz concert hall and saw Vijay Iyer. And I was like, oh my God, this is where like a real musician plays their music. And now I am taking my band out there. So if you're in California, come through. Should we talk about our guest today? Our guest is pretty awesome. Our guest is like one of the greats on the rise. Uh, We have Kara Jackson on the pod today, and I have been wanting to interview her like as soon as I saw the visuals for her debut album, Why Does the Earth Give Us People to Love? Kara has a mind like a diamond and a voice like maple syrup. She has always been drawn to um, the possibilities of expressing yourself through music, but you probably first heard her name as the Youth Poet Laureate of the United States. No big deal. Um, She cut her teeth as a slam poet. And of course, as the laureate, she gained an enormous public platform. Um, But the secret, like, strength that she gained from starting out as a poet is, like, this awareness of how form can become the scaffolding for expression. Now she's the ripe old age of, I believe, 23 years old. And her debut album, Why Does the Earth Give Us People to Love, is like one of the best debut albums you're going to hear this year. Um, As the title suggests, it is a meditation on love and grief. Um, And Kara has some really great insights about how opening ourselves up to grief and sharing it collectively can be a way into a more healthy culture. So I was really eager to talk to her about that. Um, Another really cool insight that she shared was like how her parents' political uh, beliefs 
influenced her upbringing and influenced her sense of what it means to be an artist in the world. Um, Another like really important takeaway that I took from this conversation with Kara is that she is a part of a generation of new artists that is redefining how Black women can be listened to and interpreted and taken seriously in our culture. So I'm just super grateful that she sat down with me to go in-depth on her album, in-depth on the surrealist visuals on her album, and like gave me a peek into her brain and how she thinks about her future when she's just starting out her inspiring music career. She sounds like a fully baked adult. It's unbelievable. It like she's wow. She's so inspiring to watch, and I like really cannot wait to see what she does next with her music. That's cool. Also, be prepared. Her speaking voice is <gasps> irresistible. If you just like cannot be ready for how beautiful and soothing and mystical her voice is, <laughs> it's so great. And she's so funny and goofy. Let's take a listen to a song from Kara's debut. We will hear Pawn Shop, and then we'll get to our conversation with Lizzie No and Kara Jackson on Basic Bulk. When you become somebody's bandit and their heart becomes your loot, what kind of player does that make you? Breaking your hearts and selling them too. I was used but good as new Shiny as a tattoo But permanent as party balloons Kara Jackson Welcome to Basic Folk. I am so excited to be talking with you. And normally I don't talk about logistics during the interview, but you and your team have been so like great and flexible about scheduling this when we have both been very busy. So shouts to you and your team. We are recording this conversation on July 5th, the day after a big American holiday that I don't need to name. Um, would it be okay if I read one of your poems that I want to start with? Yeah, sure. Or would you be willing to read it? Um, Yeah, sure. If you just tell me which one. Anthem for my belly after eating too much. And if we can't get the rights to it, we'll just link it in the show notes. But I'd love to hear you read it and so we can use it as a jumping off point. <laughs> Pull it up so I can have the correct words. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. Anthem for my belly after eating too much. I look in the mirror and all the chips I've eaten this month have accumulated like schoolwork at the bottom of my tummy, my belly, a country I'm trying to love. My mouth is a lover devoted to you, my belly, my belly. The birds will string a song together with wind for you and your army of solids, militia of Greece. Americans love excess, but we also love jeans and refuse to make excess comfortable in them. I step into a fashionable prison, my middle managed and fastened into suffering. My gracious gut, dutiful dome, I will wear a house for you that you can live in. Promise walls that embrace your growing flesh and watch you reach 
toward everything possible. Thank you so much. What a treat to hear that, like from the horse's mouth, <laughs> from the poet's mouth. Um, what does it mean to you, right now at least, to wear a house for your gut that it can live in? Yeah. So I wrote this that poem when I was much younger than I am now. I mean, I guess relatively. I think I was a teenager, um, and I think that. Reading it again for the first time in a long time, I feel really, I really resonate with what my younger self was trying to do. I think I have like more complex opinions about what it even means to like have a gut. I feel like especially in this moment that we're in where I feel like personally on TikTok and everything, everybody's been trying to advertise, you know, your gut health and like how to take care of your stomach and like bloating and everything. And I feel like all those that language is really code for like other weird language that I don't love. Right. Um, People talk about inflammation mm -hmm. as if it's a religious failing. Or like the, like whatever draining, like, yeah, I feel like people are always like, you're toxins. Like you have to drain your body. And I'm like, I just don't really believe in a lot of that stuff. Like, no. <laughs> I think it's really enticing to a young girl, especially. And, you know, coming from my what I grew up with in my teenage years was like Tumblr and like Lana Del Rey 2012 like you know all these really like skinny white women and like these pictures of them so I think I was writing that poem really coming out of a place of just feeling limited like I think being a girl you're so limited to what you think you're supposed to look like and then also just the limitations that are inherent in like being an American and just like, yes, I think it was Toni Morrison who said like racism, it distracts us. And I feel like it makes us everything less efficient than it could be. And so I think that's also where I was coming from when I think of that and think of like excess, like I feel like there's such a sense that we can't contain everything or there's not enough room for everyone or like we're so limited, but I feel like writing that poem, I was trying to really, walk away from limitations and just let myself embrace mm. you know the parts of me that are that do take up space and I just love fashion in general and I think something that I love about like black American fashion is just how it literally takes up space like you know like baggy jeans and like mm -hmm. heli jackets like I think that that's like what I love about us is like the insistence on taking up space with like literal literal space and literal fabric just like the sheer amount of fabric that we choose to wear oh my god yes to that um yeah I was really taken by that poem especially like coming out of the fourth because of what it feels like to be in a like to be a black woman and thinking about what room if any the country has made for us um I wonder, like, this might be like a question that you just say, pass, absolutely, let's not even go there, and that's fine. Um, you were the Youth Poet Laureate mm -hmm. of the U.S., and do you consider yourself a patriot? Like, how did that role influence how you felt about your citizenship, I guess? Yeah, I really like that question because I think it's been interesting 
being introduced with my music, you know, having my music be, being introduced with the context of my laureateship, because I feel like yes. really far removed from it in a just literal sense. You know, it's been years yeah, <laughs> since I've been exactly. a laureate. And then also I was just so much younger. And so it's been kind of weird interacting with people like, you know, I've seen some people say on social media, like, I was afraid I wasn't going to like this album because, like, she was some laureate, and that sounds so weird. Like, that's not, like, very rock and roll of her or whatever. And I think it's been interesting because, for me, I was like, I don't know, dude. I was, like, 17. I feel like that's so different than how intentional I was able to be making this album even or just how I approach my life now where, I don't know, I wonder if I, if I were offered something like that in the moment I'm in now, if I would even take it. But I think that was something that was really complicated about having that role and even being a laureate is that a part of it was, you know, you're representing the United States in your work. And I feel like I've never, I've never really had to deal with that, with the kind of relationship with my art and the state in such a literal way except for when I was the laureate but then also I don't think that I've really had to deal with those questions in the same way again since being the laureate and I feel like especially doing music which is so different you know than having some formal role where you have to like because there were you know limitations and formalities inherent in being the laureate that like I don't think that we really talked about because it was just kind of a part of the role but they were really explicit about the things you could do and things you couldn't like you couldn't say certain things on your platform got it um I feel like it radicalized me further actually having to do that job because I was very frustrated with the realities of it and having to navigate being an artist and then also representing your country and finding out really quickly that that's really kind of not possible (laughs) to do right you have to walk a really fine line I mean that lead I don't even want to (laughs) like spend too much time on that because it's so heavy and I think the good thing about music is that in general I mean unless you're playing at the uh inauguration or something you're pretty much expected to speak for yourself um I'm curious about like as we transition into talking completely about music and this amazing album that you've released let's talk about live performance so like how do your experiences as a slam poet influence your musical performances? And and you've already started to touch on this, but how do you feel musician Kara is different from poet Kara? And is that influenced by the different audiences that you have in poetry versus music? Like, can you flesh out a little bit of those two sides of you? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think sometimes it all just feels like, you know, Kara, like it's just me, but I think... The poetic space and writing poems for me has really changed a lot over the years as like the spaces that I was in have changed a lot and I've grown older and just, you know, I think with COVID, like the last few years, things have changed for everyone and it's just been different socializing and being in that space. I don't slam anymore. I don't do slam poetry, mostly because I don't really like the competitive aspects of it and Mm -hmm. I think it would be really hard for me to return to that headspace like making art with the pursuit of like competing against other people it's just kind of a lot honestly but I think of music as more of my like really 
I've just liked music my whole life, so I think of it as kind of like a baseline and like a foundation for me that I always return to is just loving music and listening to it and being a connoisseur of music more than anything else. So I think sometimes with those realms, I feel like music has given me, there's more of a sense of like experimentation and I'm just kind of like exploring myself and who I am. And I think art in general is really, I say a lot like that songwriting and making songs is really supernatural. And I think making art in general is really supernatural. And it's just cool that like so many people feel called to just like write down whatever they're thinking or whatever. Like sometimes it doesn't feel like yourself, but I feel like that is especially echoed with making music and that sentiment is really felt when I'm making music. It's just like, it doesn't really feel like yourself sometimes. And I think that's always the difference is I feel like with poems, you just learn a lot of formalities and there's form and grammar and things that like, sometimes you can like let that wash away when you're just like making a melody or you're just trying to make a nice song. It doesn't really matter the amount of syllables or whatever. <laughs> like, Well, do you have specific practices for opening up your mind to that flowy open songwriting creativity like do you have something things that you do to help you prepare to receive a song mm -hmm. from the muse i'm trying to be more intentional about songwriting actually these days because i think for so long a lot of it has just been you know it'll just come to me like a song or a melody and then i'll just kind of flesh it out over time or i'll just kind of spend a long time writing it but i'm trying to be more like discipline I guess in terms of just my approach because I know I can get into a mode like finishing the album it got to a point where I just was like I want to finish this album so I was just you know oh yeah working and actually just trying to like force some of these songs to like <laughs> be a thing yeah. but I think in general I really just kind of will go through life and I'll just randomly like before I go to sleep or in the middle of me sleeping or something I'll be like I have an idea and then I'll just record it or write it down or whatever mm -hmm. but I'm trying to be more intentional and, and experiment in terms of just like what I like for my space and I'm done with college too so I'm trying to like congrats thank you I'm trying to just like in general figure out what <laughs> like a day-to-day -day basis looks like for me and yeah what's comfortable and having my own space and not living in a dorm and stuff like lots of things to figure out in terms of my routine So speaking of the album and, and how it came to be, what stood out to me first about why does the earth give us people to love is, well, first, it's your voice, and we're going to get to that. But the arrangements, they seem effortless. But then the more you listen, the more complexity mm -hmm. makes itself known. So I imagine there was probably quite a process between I have a demo and then I have a full recording. So which song on the album would you say like traveled the greatest distance and made the most transformations between that original seed of an idea and the final recording that we have now? I feel like I've been asked this question before and then I told myself I was going to actually figure out what the real answer is. We don't care I... about the right answer here on Basic Folk. You just say what you feel. Because <laughs> I think that there is a real answer and there is probably one song where I'm like, oh, if I went back and listened to the demo, it would be like 
dramatic, but I think definitely, like, the longer ones, like, Rat mm-hmm. especially, and even Dickhead Blues, like, there's such a difference between those demos and then what ended up being the final version, because when I wrote when I wrote Dickhead Blues, I was kind of like, it was kind of two songs in one, almost. It was, like, the verses, and then there's, like, this different section that I kind of had just and sitting on like the if I had a heart section that I was just like this is an idea I have but I don't know what it is and I think when I brought it to my collaborators and I had the finished demo we kind of just sit with it for a while we're like we're just gonna get back to that and then I think we just started building off on it and it became something entirely different and then I decided to like vocalize like improv over it eventually too and that like I really think changed the song and made it a different song. But yeah, I would say like Dickhead Blues and Rat are two that I immediately think of just really dramatically changed in the process as opposed to like recognize that it's like basically the same way that it has been the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That is an earworm of a melody. Um, Well, it sounds like you had a really great rapport with your collaborators and co-writers because I feel like you're not I mean it as at least for me like I'm not improvising unless I feel rock solid that mm-hmm. like if I like take a leap I'm gonna be caught by my collaborators like can you talk about what the vibe was in the studio with the people yeah. that you worked with on the album yeah all the people I worked on the album with are people who I consider to be you know friends first and like before we started doing the album, like, Sen Morimoto and Kaina Castillo, they were, those are just my friends, like, and they have been consistent supporters of mine, and they'd consistently push me in my own work, you know, like, my EP that I put out in 2019. Mm-hmm. I really don't think I would have put it out if it wasn't for Kaina kind of, like, urging me to just release something and put out music. But, um, yeah, I think that they really did make me feel held the whole time in the process. And I feel like it really shows in the music. I feel like especially considering the ways in which the album is just exploring relationships and friendships in in general, it only made sense to really make the work with my friends. And it does seem like an effort of friends, just the way that the album all came together. You can really see how each person individually has their own personality kind of somewhere buried in the music mm-hmm. somewhere there's like little nomdi parts where I'm like that's so nomdi and then like there's some parts where I'm like only sin could have done that so yeah. I think that that's really special for me to go back and listen to the songs and be able to also just feel the actual moments that we were in the studio like I think at the beginning working on it it was really just we'd meet up every week and just build really organically. We'd pick a song, like, okay, let's work on Pawn Shop today. And then, like, we would just sit, and if we heard an idea, we would just kind of try it and give it its proper due. And sometimes it would sound really good, and sometimes it would sound really weird. And we'd have <laughs> to just kind of start over again. But, yeah. yeah, I think that that's just why it sounds the way that it does, is because it is, like you said, really... It was effortless sometimes, and we would just be like, this is how it sounds. And sometimes it would be kind of, it would require a lot of thought. Like, Dickhead Blues, there's this chiming sound that we, like, spent forever trying to just, like, decide <laughs> what was the right sound. Yeah. And so it's stuff like that that makes it really rewarding to go back and listen to. 
Um, I want to talk about one of your friends in the industry, Jamila Woods. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to paraphrase something that you said in an interview. You said that she advised you to be cautious about how much of yourself you share in your songs. Um, and I want to place that thought next to some of your lyrics. Mm -hmm. Um, every man thinks I'm his fucking mother, good for milk and good for supper. Never asks if I can be his lover, special someone when he suffers. So is there a connection between how you feel you are consumed as an artist and how you feel you are treated in relationship and how do you protect yourself in both of those contexts? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I feel like really my initial response is honestly, when I think about that question and I think about being a black woman, it's really alarming to me how <laughs> many different contexts we can live in and still be like subject to someone else's consumption like I think it's a struggle and even for me I'm still really young so I'm still trying to figure out in really real time how to protect myself and how much of myself to share and I think that's what I was really hitting on with what Jamila taught me is you know someone who is older than me but is also still navigating and asking the same questions I think something I've really learned from her is just to be really protective over yourself and especially the ways in which that you're going to change and so I think there's some sense of it feels weird because my music is really confessional and a lot of people you know consider it to be kind of like me just spilling out myself but I think that's one thing that poetry gave me too is this ability to be really personal but also like poised in this way and really intentional with just your language and I think through some of that intentionality and just some of the artistic part of it and the form part of it it kind of tricks people into thinking that you're really like secretive when you're not like I right. think that that's one of the funniest things about like the album for me is everyone being like she's given so much of herself and like you share so much of yourself but I feel like to me I don't really feel like I'm sharing that much I feel like it's kind of a facade it's like feeling like you're getting so close to a person but the trick is and I think what Jamila's taught me is letting people get close enough to you know it feels intimate but also understanding that like there is no true intimacy between you and like a bunch of strangers and you have to honor that and you have to like fiercely protect the gray area and you know the parts where people can't see you know that part that people aren't gonna ever see of you so like I think that's kind of where I'm feeling a lot lately it's just mm -hmm. in general like in the songs like I think you're right in the sense that there are some songs where I feel like, wow, I really am, like, I need to buck up. I need to, like, stand up <laughs> for myself. And then there's some <laughs> things where I'm like, it's actually cool because, you know, I'm 23 and I was, like, 18, 19, 20 writing some of these songs, like, 21. That blows my mind. <laughs> but for me, it's just, like, I'm not that person anymore, so it feels kind of right. nice that it almost seems like I'm anonymous in a sense where I'll never 
actually have to know that part of myself <laughs> as intimately right. as like I know the current self that is writing new songs and is going to evolve and hopefully sound older in the next album or whatever. That is so interesting. I relate to so much of that. And I feel like we could go on a whole tangent about how the general white public has not updated their view of Black women mm -hmm. since the days when most of us engaged in the workforce as domestics. And totally. most white people still treat us as like emotional servants when we're <laughs> in public. But anyway, okay, so I think it's really interesting that you bring up your um, training as a poet as a way into this like mm -hmm. conflict. Because like, when you're studying poetry, you describe the I, like the first person in the poem, as the speaker. Mm -hmm. You don't describe it as the poet. Like there's right. an understanding that a character has been written by an author and that they don't necessarily have much of anything in common. That like there's a character speaking through the work that is not the exact same as the human author. And I wish we had a better analog for that in music because so many yeah. people, I think just like assume it's autobiographical, assume there's like a one-to-one -one relationship between, you know, especially women's writing and black women's yeah, writing. Especially women. And that's one of the things that makes me so mad. Cause it, cause it undervalues the power of your craft. Yeah. I think that that's something that's really important to me is just the fact that it still is like, writing and it's still like art and I feel like sometimes like Mitski is someone who talks about this a lot and I really respect like the way that she talks about it because I think you know with her work and I would see my work in a similar vein like working in the same space yeah. I feel like people really undervalue her chops as like an artist and like I think that's one thing that poetry has given me that I feel like I try to apply to music as well as I think it's jarring when someone looks at my work and is like this is confessional because I I can see in real time like you know what we were talking about like the actual form and the craft and like the explicit taking out things and kind of like what I was talking about in terms of it seems confessional but there's so much work that is going on in a craft sense where you know you're really breaking down and like compartmentalizing so many different things that it's not just like I woke up and I wrote a diary entry and then I made it a song and I have respect for people who do that also but that's just like a specific thing and I think that women are often kind of written off as being like oh this is diaristic or like this is confessional this is so raw and it's like these aren't raw things this is an artist who is very professional and like and, like, did you see all eight rounds of edits? Right, you know. It's not raw. It's literally, like, many, many drafts and people later. try to be like, I don't understand why SZA is so important to people. And I, I feel like that's why I get so frustrated when people say that. Because I don't think that people understand. Or There's a lot of people that want to take that intentionality away from someone like SZA. Because mm -hmm. they don't see her as someone worthy of being like a songwriter and I think that that's something that really irks me personally because oh yeah you know in folk music it is so often that you know you'll see some man doing the same exact thing as you and then they get called a genius or whatever for their writing and their penmanship or whatever and then they're calling me like diaristic 
when I, you right. know. <laughs> Raw, emotional, soulful. It's all like, it's all code words for like black woman. Right. And, like, and like, yeah. And it would happen with poems too. People like, this is so raw. Yeah. And you're like, what? This is like a pantoom. Like, you know, this is like yes. a sonnet. <laughs> like, Come on, pantoom. Right. It's like, you know, I just don't think that people yeah. understand that. And so sometimes, yeah, that's one of my biggest things that I complain about in general is just how women are so often denied the artistic formalities and the skill like we're just denied the skill set that we are so obviously displaying and demonstrating all the time and so yeah I think that that's something that I wish people would bring up more and I feel like that's why I'm glad and grateful for a background in poetry to be able to bring in some of those terms and language to understand. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that Jamila Woods has also really instilled in me is just like, you know, the practice doesn't change that much just because you're calling it something different. Like something cool about poems is that we do is, you know, that feels like sampling to me in a citation is like when you write a poem after someone else. And I think like, that's another thing is, you know, what you're saying about the I in poems and how it's more complicated than, oh, this is just this person. Because a lot of times we're pulling from and it's a continuum and we're like building off of the work someone else did that's not even me. You know, like I consider myself to be in a lineage of artists, you know, like Jamila and like like Nina Simone and like people who aren't even here anymore. And so it's like, really frustrating when someone's like this is confessional when it's like you know you're doing all this other type of work (laughs) you know what's interesting I do feel like that's a very white thing to a white male patriarchal concept that there's a sole isolated Mm -hmm. siloed author and they are writing about something that they they uniquely came up with whereas like so many cultures are more about like being in conversation with you know, your artistic ancestors mm-hmm. and the people who are coming after. And it's about contributing to not necessarily a canon, but maybe an ongoing conversation about, you know, how people are looking at their lives and yeah. how people are talking about love, like recognizing I'm not the first person to talk about this. Right. And I'm in conversation with those who came before. For me, that's a much more, more comfortable place to be artistically, because yeah. then it doesn't matter as much like what I individually like mm-hmm. think and feel. Yeah, it's definitely self-reliance, Emerson, (laughs) individualism vibes, yeah. (laughs) I think the visuals for this album are so brilliant, and there's so much of it that's, like, still mysterious to me, Mm -hmm. but the music video for No Fun Party is so fun and spooky and a little (laughs) bit like something you might see like if you were watching Nickelodeon at like two in the morning Mm -hmm. um how would you describe the different characters to me like what I saw was like sort of like the childlike guitar playing moon river pigtail Mm -hmm. person and then there's like the high glam sparkly metallic person with like the glossy wig and then there's the doll holding mm-hmm. a guitar and then there's like a giant hand that maybe is the same person and then there's the banjo player in the boat at the very end so yeah. like what were you trying to do with all those different characters and why did you play multiple of them mm-hmm. yeah well the no fun video in specific i really have to nod to jellystone who 
was the director because we had been kind of toying with the different ideas for the different visuals and kind of trying to think about how there was a certain continuity there, like with the doll, for one, like she's kind of a recurring character. Um, but yeah, for the No Fun video, we actually had the idea of kind of the set being like a doll house and there being these two versions of me, like the doll self. So that's kind of like the high glam, like Bratz doll looking yeah. version of me. And then there's like the kind of stripped down normal me, <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. who's more child. Like it does kind of feel like my inner child, like talking to like, you know, maybe like my most glamorous, like most mm. successful self or something. But there is a sense of like, with all the visuals just playing with this like realism and then this like hyper surrealism so there's like some of these moments where you're like what is even going on like (laughs) I think the doll is like what keeps that like mystery going in all the videos is that there's like this almost like voodoo doll-esque like version of me yeah holding a guitar and like also the doll kind of represents this exchange between like this very real realm and this very like mysterious realm too um but with no fun it definitely was kind of playing on this idea of like there's this house that looks like a real house but then it's like a doll house and then there's kind of like a real human version like going in and fixing everything in the house and like making it look correct or whatever um but yeah that was a really fun one to film too because well, the makeup was just really fun to do for the doll, but also like, I think it just was really cool to see in real time us just pulling off this kind of really weird idea like honestly, <laughs> like yeah. this kind of duplicity, like we had to have a, like a double for me like our other friend Daisy was kind of playing both versions of me too, because we had to like make it look like I was just dancing with myself essentially Oh my god. So, yeah, I feel like that was kind of what we were pulling from in general. I think the album is dealing with a lot of duplicities. Like, there's, like, love and grief. And so there's, like, Mm -hmm. I think that those are both two things that are really, like, theorized around. And there's, like, these idealized versions of both. And then there's, like, the realistic Mm -hmm. versions, too. And so I think that there's kind of also where some of that, like, duplicity visually is coming from is just like this like hyper real like doll-esque like you know beautiful version of me and then there's like this very normal almost like I mean in general I just have a very baby face no matter how old I get who can relate (laughs) but like you know that's like the other side and like the kind of grit that is just like inherent in living life I think yeah Oh, man, that's so interesting. Okay, I want to talk about grief, and I'm glad you brought it up. You said in an interview with Crack Magazine, if we had more of a culture around grief, and if we had to actually learn about that relationship in a more intentional way in school, how that would open ourselves up to each other in different ways, not in like a kumbaya, we're all together way. I'm too cynical for that. But I think about how a culture of individualism is challenged by a culture of grief, and how that pain ultimately connects us all. Um, So what would an emotionally healthy culture look like as it relates to grief? Mm -hmm. Well, I think for me, 
the thing that is the most pronounced when I'm grieving is like time. I think the ways in which one, like I saw a joke on Twitter the other day that was like, it's so cool calling, like having your sick days, like, for, like your time of bereavement. And like, it's just three days or something, you know, some people yeah. are like, I'm calling in. Cause like I'm grieving. It's like so cool to think that you could actually grieve in three days and then return to work yes. and be like fine. But I think that that's one of the things that is, I, as I've grown up, especially losing people really young and losing my best friend really young and being in high school in a time where I was still just learning the world. And like, I think especially when you're a teenager is when you learn how uniquely unfair the world is just in so many different ways. Um, like, you know, your first jobs or whatever. But I feel like for me, it was like losing someone and then immediately seeing the lack of time that you're given to even grieve or like, you know, for me, I was like a junior in high school or something. And it was weird to be to lose a friend and then immediately being told like, OK, make sure you're studying for the SAT or like whatever. I know, right? so weird to, as like, if the SAT is like um, an important <laughs> it's such a weird thing as mentally. if that's like yeah no I, I can totally relate especially when it comes from a culture of like achievement and productivity right. and capitalism like you don't have time for your real emotional cycles mm -hmm. and I think especially with COVID too like which you know is ongoing I feel like the response that we've had to it and just the kind of indifference is a direct like result of a culture we have that we can't even pause for death and like I think something that was really devastating about the moments of isolation we had was funerals and not being able to go to them or like mm. my friends in New Zealand who are Maori like talking about you know Maori funerals the last days and I think that that was something for me and especially as I think how black people grieve is a really specific way too but I think time is something that is really a big thing for grief and it's mm -hmm. something that because of capitalism we already have such little time and i feel like that means a lot of different things like we don't have time for each other we don't have time for like right. extracurricular like you know just anything the things that make life worth living really like human connection daydreaming yeah like the things that yeah. make us all <laughs> human and i think that's really what i meant is like because we all do it there's some things that we're not all going to experience like it's so weird that everyone lives with this idea that, like, oh, I could be a billionaire. Ew. When, like, accurately, like, not many people are going to do that. But then at the same time, guaranteed, everyone is going to, like, lose somebody. And so it's so weird that people can't make space for, like, other people's grief and, like, loss. Like, we can't have a culture around loss. But we can't have a culture around making money and, like, trying right. to become a billionaire. <laughs> like, it's just so interesting to me that, like, we're so, like, united in certain things like but we can't actually find the language and develop a culture around those things that we do all share and I think that like love and grief are the two things where it's like everyone wants you know like bell hooks talks about like everyone wants to be loved like there's not someone who's like as much as you can be like fuck that like I grew up emo like I grew up you know listening to Paramore and stuff and it's like okay fine you can like pretend like you don't want to do that but Everyone wants to love and everyone will grieve and everyone mm -hmm. has someone in this world that they don't want to lose. And so I think that on a basic level, like what I meant by that in the Crack Magazine interview, is just like, I think if we had more time 
and we're given more time to grieve and people could actually understand grief, it would necessitate us just understanding each other more. Cause like, I know. Yeah. People are going through it. I mean, like it's just impossible. The amount of deaths that have arrived, like even through COVID, the amount of people we've lost, like it's impossible in my opinion for so many people to be carrying on and just be fine. Like people are not well, as much as we try to be like, this is normal. It's it's not normal the way that people are acting like (laughs) in general. No. And as if, if we keep working on schedule, like it won't be coming for all of us. Like Emily Dickinson said, like, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me, which is like Mm -hmm. very brutal. And like, it's coming for all of us, even if we don't make time to understand it and make peace with it. I wanted to go back to bell hooks. I noticed that you use like, mostly lower capitalization in the text on mm-hmm. your on your album is that a nod to bell hooks um maybe unintentionally i think it is kind of a nod to bell hooks and then also kind of a statement on like my generation and the time i'm in like i don't know i've really i grew up on tumblr and like twitter and stuff and then yeah. like the no like no auto caps <laughs> like on your phone like texting people too so i think that that's kind of a nod to like my age maybe but yeah that's just how things have changed i like don't capitalize texts mm-hmm. and people have asked me if it's intentional and it, it what's funny is it feels like a little more communist and a little bit more like no word yeah. is more important than the other Except for black, I always capitalize. Yeah, black. same. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how I I I don't want to let you go without asking about like my pet topic of communism. How did your mom's union work influence mm-hmm. your concept of like what your responsibility was to your community? Yeah, that's a really cool question, and I feel like my mom will really appreciate it because she's always like, "You talk about your dad more interviews." <laughs> but hey, Kara's mom. <laughs> Um, my mom's work in the union, I think, actually really radicalized me at a young age because we had to go to a lot of protests growing up. I remember it specifically like in Wisconsin. I think I was like eight when like that big strike happened. Was that when Scott Walker was basically trying to like put people into indentured servitude? Yeah. <laughs> mm hmm. Yeah, that was with Scott Walker and everything. And I remember being really young and my mom explaining to us what was going on. And there was not a hesitation around, like, going there, even though it was, like, negative 10 degrees or something Mm. crazy. (laughs) We just went and we protested. And I remember that being a really big thing, even though I didn't understand all the time, like, all the language we were using or whatever, like, I just knew that that was something that people did was go out and organize and protest. Like even just to be able to see that type of organizing going on in real time or like, you know, now she's working on this big contract with museums and like, it's been really cool to see her, especially as a black woman. And a lot of times my mom is like actively making history. Yeah. Like it's so weird to see the things I do and like, be applauded for them and I'm really grateful but then to, like see my mom low-key making history as simply off of just being the only black woman in some of these rooms or in some of these spaces is like really inspiring to me but I think she in specific is just like both of my parents have done really cool things like for them to work in law like they definitely didn't take like the you know like get rich quick no like route like my dad was a public defender but like my mom especially, I think, 
she really instilled in us in like a real direct like okay these are my actions and this is directly related to like my beliefs I think she was really the one for me the one example I had even with her like growing up and her getting on the train and like going to the pride parade as like this you know straight like little black woman she was like I grew up you know and I was I'm friends with gay people Let's so like I yeah. want to see my friends at the pride parade <laughs> like and just having examples like that as a young kid I think that that's really I have to owe that all to my mom because I didn't really see women her age and like especially black people her age you know taking a stand for some of the things just so firmly the way that she has my whole life and that's just as like what I'm used to because she's my mom and that's just Mm -hmm. who she is but I think it's really easy for me to take that for granted so the older I get the more I'm like that's really crazy that you're like 64 and like you've been so clear about some of the things that you've been clear on my whole life and I've just like lived with that so I think that that's definitely what her union work has done for me really directly but I think that's partially just who my mom is as a person. I have one more question about the album and then I hope you'll be willing to do a quick lightning round where we do rapid fire questions. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm still like holding the song free in my hand with like some mixed emotions and reactions and Mm -hmm. it's such a beautiful song and there's something really simple and straightforward about it. There's a boundary setting. Um, The instrumentals are so beautiful. There's something melancholy about it. And I wonder if there are ways in which you wish you were more free now, or is there like a, a dark or a lonely side of freedom that you were trying to explore? Yeah. Um, I feel like Free is a really interesting song for me, too, because I think it's one that I'm still, like... There's some songs that I feel like I still am trying to understand myself, even though I wrote them. (laughs) But I actually... A shout-out to my mom again, because I really was kind of going back and forth with keeping that song on the album, and then I ended up keeping it on there because it's my mom's favorite song. And I think for me, like, with Free, it's been more of an experience of like seeing what that song does to other people than it even was for like granting my own freedom or like you know it being a statement on my own freedom but um yeah I think that freedom is really lonely (laughs) like I think that that's maybe what I was as someone who likes to be alone a lot and I like actually I have Aquarius placement so it's like I like being by myself oh I see but I think say less (laughs) There is something weird about sometimes being in a situation, and I think this goes back to having Aquarius placements, is sometimes I'm the only person who feels the way that I do. Like, I've spent my life going Mm -hmm. through life being in a lot of situations where I'm the only person who will say something or, like, I feel like the only person taking a certain stance on something. And, like, I think while... I've been empowered to do so many things like that and it can be really empowering, you know, and even being relied on in that way, like, you know, it's really awesome and like using my language in that way and taking stands on stuff is really empowering, but sometimes it can be really isolating and weird and like lonely. I feel like I've never felt that way more heavily and more intensely than like being in 2023 and being someone who like 
still wears a mask or like, you know, still right. wants to protect myself. I think that I've never felt lonelier <laughs> than like taking a stance like that. And I feel like living in that moment is really changed like what a song like Free mm. has meant for me because I've really had to in real time contend with what does it mean to like literally be alone with yourself and how you feel and like your convictions and all the things that you're committed to or whatever it's like what happens when you're literally just sitting on a hill and you're like it's just me like feeling this way or it's just me and my little mask or like whatever so I think that that's kind of the song is really changing for me in real time I think I wrote it in a time where I was just like being like screw you to some boy or something but I think like really contending with what freedom means to me in like a general context is like it's been it's wild sometimes (laughs) yeah thank you so much for going so deep on this unbelievably beautiful important album why does the earth give us people to love is like receiving a lot of well-deserved praise. And I'm just really thrilled that you have taken the time to talk about it with me. Okay. Let's do a lightning round. You can skip a question if you want to, but just answer from your instinct. Don't think too hard about it. Okay. Okay. What is your favorite Sonny Rollins song? Oh my gosh, can I look on my Apple Music really quickly? Go for it, yeah. <laughs> okay, sweet. Because I grew up listening to Sonny Rollins like, every day. I know. And I'm trying to remember what <laughs> I've been the creeping. song was that my dad always played. Well, in general, I really like the Complete Night at the Village Vanguard album. But I'm just going to say Softly as in a Morning because that's the easier answer, but I love Sonny <laughs> What's your favorite Joni Mitchell song right now? Oh, right now? Um, I always mix these up, but um, A Lesson in Survival? Oh, yeah. I want to say. Yeah, I like that song. I like that one and the one it goes into. Yeah. Who is your celebrity crush? Uh, celebrity crush? Oh, I don't know. Um... I'd say Method Man probably. Oh, <laughs> Method Man, forever. Yeah. And if you and if Method Man, Method Man, if you're listening and you want to come on the pod just to shoot the shit, I would just love to look at your face for an hour on Zoom. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite live music venue that you've ever played? Ooh, I just played the Troubadour in LA, and that was amazing. really amazing. Congrats! Thank you. That's dope. Um, what is the last book you read and loved? Ooh, um, I just finished The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that book. It's kooky. It's weird, but I kind of like it. I feel like every time I read one of his books, I'm like, you're weird, but Uh I like you. (laughs) I like what Murakami does with, like, altitude. Like, the the well Mm -hmm. in that really felt... I mean, I'm a Scorpio, so the subterranean is really Mm -hmm. powerful for me. But yeah, that book really hit... Yeah, a tender it spot. was nice. It was nice. Um, what does success look like for you in 40 years? Like in a few words, what are some things that would represent success to you? I just want to have a sense of a family, mm-hmm. whatever that means. And I want to be somewhere comfortable where I can do something every day that I like to do. <laughs> I think that that's success for me. 
Um, what is one thing you wish everybody knew about Beyonce? About Beyonce? Um, I don't know, because I just don't know what people don't know about Beyonce in general, but... Okay, I'll, t- I'll give you mine. Mine <laughs> is that, like, I feel like people do not understand and appreciate the depth of her uh, knowledge of choreography and different mm-hmm. dance cultures from around the world, and, like, how she's intentionally using body movement to mm-hmm. cite and reference and pay homage yeah. to so many different cultures. That's a good one. I think similar to that, I really just want... People, like, know that Beyonce can sing, and I think that that's well-established, but I wish people understood, like, similar to what you were saying, the depth of, like, her vocalization and, like, how much of a unicorn she is as a vocalist, because I don't think people understand it's not normal to be in your 40s and to be getting that much better at, like singing like plastic off the sofa this many albums in is it's crazy i think that virgo's groove is her best song (laughs) like from her Mm -hmm. discography and it's decades into her career and for her also to be exploring her lower register and also i love how she's studied you know like arabic style like i Mm -hmm. just people don't understand the levels that of beyonce's references in general i think people just don't understand in general, how hard of a worker Beyonce is in terms of just, like, studying other people's work. And I feel like if more people understood that about Beyonce, they could be more like Beyonce in their own work because I don't think a lot of people value studying in general and knowing your history, but she does. Do the reading. Yeah, Beyonce does understand that. (laughs) Okay, last one. What is one thing you wish... Uh, your audience, or let's say our basic folk audience, knew about you, Kara Jackson? Hmm. Um, I really wish people would understand in general, because I put out such a serious album, and I think I have such a serious presence mm-hmm. online, everything. I just think in general, I don't get enough credit for how funny I am as a person. And I'm trying to change yep. the narrative, because I think <laughs> that I am very funny, despite I see being Twitter. really serious. <laughs> Right? I don't know. I think I can be really funny. And I think sometimes people are like, you're so serious, like, so sad. But I think even on my album, I feel like people don't let me... Like, I don't think people understand how funny I am, even in moments where it maybe shouldn't be funny. (laughs) That, I think, is... And I say this with so much respect and love. That's the blackest thing about you, actually. How Mm -hmm. funny you are in very serious (laughs) moments. Um... Kara, thank you so much for this hour. Thank you. I can't wait for everyone in our audience to listen to your album and really dig into your all of your work, your EP, your poetry as well. Um, so thank you so much for coming on Basic Folk. Yeah, thank you for having me. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by Sarah Wardrop. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. You can go to our website, basicfolk.com, or wherever you get podcasts. There's so many places to listen to podcasts. I feel like an oldster when I look at a list of places to listen. Did you know that our episodes are on YouTube in full? I just learned that. Yeah, unless we don't check a box. Well, let's check the box. All right, dear listener, don't forget to check the box. (laughs) Thanks for listening all the way to the end. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.